Act Three of The Princess and the Butterfly or the Fantastics by Arthur Wing Pinheiro. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Third Act The scene is a spacious, richly decorated room in a house in the Avenue des Champs-Élysées at Paris. At the back are three windows draped with curtains and having silk blinds, but the blinds are up and the curtains drawn aside. These windows, outside which jealousies are fixed, open on to a graveled forecourt enclosed by high railings over which ivy is trained, while some shrubs and a few dwarf trees are growing there. Beyond the railings is a view of houses situated on the south side of the avenue. Right and left there are double doors leading to other apartments. Between the two entrances, on the left, but standing out a few feet from the wall, is a statue of Cupid with bow and arrow, a bank of flowers surrounding the pedestal of the statue. The time is evening, the room is brilliantly lighted by electricity, and the incandescent gas lamps burn brightly in the avenue. The upper doors are open. Lady Ringstead, Lady Chichely, and Mrs. Ugbrook are seated to the right. In the window recess, Blanche Oriel and Faye stand talking together earnestly. Madame Yanukov and Mrs. Marsh are sitting on a settee, while the princess occupies the chair facing them, her back to the audience. Annis is sitting alone on a settee. With the exception of Mrs. Marsh, Blanche, Faye, and Annis, who are dressed merely for dinner, the ladies are en grand toilette and wear their jewels. Two servants hand coffee and retire. Just outside the open doors, on the right, four musicians in a bright uniform are playing stringed instruments. After the servants have handed the coffee, the music ceases. And with me also, Winifred. This will be the first function at the Elysee I shall have attended since I was here with poor Ringstead in 78. But I remember... The princess now comes to the group on the right. Her face is pale. Her eyes are bright and restless. Mrs. Ugbrook rises. The princess, by a gesture, asks her to remain seated. I was about to recall, Laura, that when I last went to the Elysee, I had not dined beforehand so delightfully as you have enabled me to do tonight. Your uncle's rheumatism. Do you feel well? I... May I get you some salts? Don't trouble, dear Miss Ugbrook. Sitting in the chair vacated by Mrs. Ugbrook. Thanks. I am perfectly well. Mrs. Ugbrook joins Blanche and Faye. Certainly it was a charming thought of yours, dear Laura, to let us dine in this way before going on. But you have a little overtaxed yourself today, I fear. Princess, playing with her fan. Will you be vexed if I ask you to go to the Elsie without me? Laura, you will disappoint so many. Princess, with a smile. Hardly. This is that neuralgia again. Now, my dear Laura, radical measures must be taken with regard to this neuralgia of yours. 
Yesterday, the English chemist in the Rue Castiglione was showing me a wonderful American nerve cure. It is called... At a loss. There now. It might cure American neuralgia. I wonder whether Edward remembers the name of the stuff. When the gentlemen join us, I'll ask him. Edward was in the shop at the time, buying scent. Scent? For his own use? I gathered so. Frangipani. Frangipani? Why not, dear Mary? Winifred, Laura, something has happened to Edward. The princess turns her head away and stares at the parquet. Happened? This morning I put a question to him as to when this most pretentious of comedies, the International Conference, is likely to conclude its dreary proceedings. His reply was, what do you think? Lady Chichely shakes her head. Gazing in a most irritating way into space, he expressed a wish that the conference might find it necessary to extend its sittings. I demanded his reason. Because Paris is so satisfying. Paris, a city I have heard him describe as a vast casino. Have you remarked, too, the general change in his appearance? Well, now you... Laura, you have seen a great deal of Edward lately. You must have been struck by the alteration. I am afraid I am unobservant. Morning and afternoon, never without a flower in his coat. That can't have escaped you. And as I was saying to Blanche before dinner, there are his collars. But, Mary, you used to regret a certain lack of outward smartness in Edward. I admit it, but between that and foppishness... Foppishness? Frangipani! The musicians play again. Blanche sits with Mrs. Ugbrook. Faye crosses to Mrs. Marsh and Madame Yanukov. The servants collect the coffee cups and withdraw. During the progress of the music, the princess leaves Lady Ringstead and Lady Chichely and goes to Blanche and Mrs. Ugbrook. Blanche resigns her place on the settee to the princess and joins Lady Ringstead and Lady Chichely standing behind their chairs. As the music reaches its finale, Faye comes to Annis. There, little mouse. Oh! Hey, why don't you run about, little mouse? I wish the princess hadn't been so kind as to ask me to come downstairs after dinner. I told mother how it would be. And how is it? I'm half dead with nervousness. The gentlemen come in soon. That's the next thing, isn't it? Yes, that is the next horrible thing. Which of them took you to dinner? Colonel Eve. Nice, was he? He bored me. Bored you? My lord, he bored me till I felt my scalp quivering. Do you know that feeling? No. You will some day. Oh yes, there are men alive who will make your score shrink. They talk so foolishly. With a movement. And I wanted to be left to myself this evening, and the house to be quite quiet, so that I might carry out my little plans without difficulty. Annis, poor Faye has a great deal on her mind. Dear, what is it? Faye, sitting near Annis. 
this reception at the stupid Elysee happening tonight, this night of all nights, people returning home at ever knows what hour. Oh, my plans, my plans. But what plans? Can I help you? Yes, rather. That is what I've come to ask you. Annis, directly they have all started and disturbance have put out these lights. You must creep downstairs and wait for me here where you are in the dark. Wait till I join you, till I turn up. You understand? Faye, are you up to any more mischief? Faye, with a nod and a little sigh. Always, always up to mischief. Oh! Come, you will do this, and I will pray for you, Annis. I have cleared you from several scrapes already by doing underhand thing. I hate it. Supposing I refuse to assist you any more. Faye, rising, her eyes flashing. Then I will not pray for you, you wicked girl. The gentlemen are now appearing. Irati gentlemen, serve you right. I'll be there. Faye, squeezing Annis's hand. Katie Telorenda. Kara Pasha and Count Ravitsky, Sir Robert Chichely and Sir George Lamarant, Colonel Ugbrook and General Yanikov, Colonel Eve and Edward Oriel enter. Kara is a portly Turk in the full dress of an officer of the Ottoman army, much decorated. Ravitsky, who is also elaborately decorated, wears the Hungarian diplomatic uniform. Sir Robert Chichely, a fierce-looking, bald old gentleman of 55, is in ordinary evening dress, but is decorated with the badge and star of the bath. Yanukov wears the full dress of a general of the Russian army. Ugbrook is in simple evening dress, adorned with the CB badge. Sir George, Eve, and Edward Oriel are also in plain evening dress. In Edward's case, the change to which Lady Ringstead has alluded is apparent. A low collar worn in his previous dress has given place to a high one, and his clothes are now fashionably and elegantly cut. Kara Pasha, bowing to Lady Chichely, in apology, as he passes her, approaches Lady Ringstead. Lady Ringstead. Lady Ringstead, rising. Ainsi, vous vous souvenez de moi? Le souvenir appartient aux hommes. Il en tout plus que le fer. She taps his arm with her fan. They sit together on a settee. Ravitsky advances to the princess. Blanche talks to Sir George. Faye joins a group of the men. Sir Robert comes to Lady Chichely. Hmm, Winnie. Now, Bob, dear, what have I told you? But I have seen nothing of you all day, Winnie. Lady Chichely in a flutter. I cannot, will not allow you to, to, to pay me attention. It is most embarrassing, Bob. You, you, you positively ought to know better. Consider the length of time we've been apart. That's it. What on earth do people think? Pray remember, when we accepted Laura's invitation, you gave me a solemn promise. 
Sir Robert, sitting beside her, surreptitiously laying his hand upon hers. I cannot adhere to that condition any longer. Lady Chichely, snatching her hand away. Bob, get up. Never. You make me blush. Rising. I thought soldiers were men of honour. She leaves him and sits beside Annis. Sir Robert looks after her disconsolately. A musician detaches himself from his fellows and plays a melody upon the violin. There is an almost general change of position. Faye and Madame Yanukov sit with Sir Robert. Ravitsky seats himself beside the princess on a settee. Yanukov sits in a chair by them. Mrs. Marsh and Blanche are together on another settee. Ugbrook is facing them in a chair. Mrs. Ugbrook sits in the armchair. Sir George stands by her above the chair and Eve by Mrs. Marsh. Edward stands in the window recess, his eyes upon the princess. At the finish of the violin solo, after some slight applause, there is another general movement, the signal for which is the rising of the princess and Ravitsky. With the exception of Lady Chichely, who has become lost in thought, and of Sir Robert, who is gazing at her mournfully, all rise. Annis joins her mother. The seat beside Lady Chichely is therefore vacant. Sir Robert crosses to Lady Chichely and takes it. Lady Chichely, hastily rising. Robert, how dare you! She moves away, followed by Sir Robert. The musicians have disappeared, and the princess is standing in the doorway, shaking hands with her guests, who are taking their leave. While this is going on, Eve slips his arm through Sir George's, and they talk apart. Eve to Sir George. At last I've secured you. You saw me struggling to get to you directly. The ladies withdrew. Phew! Shishelly held me fast by a button to assure me, with a wealth of detail, that Lady Shishelly is one of the most charming women in the world. Well, my dear Arthur, you and the indefatigable de Polignac have concluded the preliminaries. They were settled late this afternoon at Laurent's. Fontenay or Courbevoie? Where is the meeting to take place? At Fontenay, at a spot halfway between the Lac de Mines and the Ladies' School on the south side of the railway station. Tomorrow morning. An hour before daybreak. Get to bed soon, George. Uh, I shan't be ten minutes at the Elysee tonight. Have you arranged for a carriage? De Polignac and I will be waiting for you with a carriage at the corner of the Rue de Boutique at a quarter past five. Thanks. What have you decided to do about the princess? To hold my tongue. The word duel to a woman suggests all sorts of horrors. Perhaps you're wise. The guests have now gone, except Lady Ringstead and Blanche. At this point, the princess disappears with Blanche and Lady Ringstead, her arm round Blanche's waist. After a moment or two, Mrs. Marsh, Annis, and Faye stroll away, following the princess, leaving the two men alone. Besides, such an escapade while under her roof. I fervently hope she'll never hear of it. 
of course i shall leave a letter behind me to be given her in case eve wincing forgive me old fellow is an apology out of the question i shall be very happy to receive mr de malley's de malley can scarcely apologize for your having broken your walking-stick across his shoulders <laughs> that's true laying a hand on eve's shoulder but don't be in the least anxious my dear arthur accidents seldom occur in these affairs and as regards this particular affair i am convinced de molly himself will be just as remorseful if his bullet chanced to graze my coat-sleeve as i should be were i so unfortunate as to wing an angel when i fire into the sky eve pulling at his moustache oh, i dare say you're right sir george with animation oh i've pictured it all i see myself with turned-up coat collar taking my twelve paces for all the world like a british police constable upon his beat i hear de polignac's high nasal voice giving the signal the sound is suggestive of punch then there are two sharp reports a few sluggish schoolgirls turn heavily in their beds and de molly and i walk off in opposite directions i to the enjoyment of quite a decent breakfast at the little restaurant of the porte jean no my dear friend the worst aspect of to-morrow morning's grotesque parade is its utter wilful absurdity absurd you may well say so but there everything is absurd when you've turned forty the princess returns with mrs marsh annis and fay say good-night to your hostess and come upstairs with me for a few moments the princess has placed the most charming little salon at my disposal and i have another startling letter from new york to read to you concerning miss zuliani sir george throwing up his hands toujours zuliani eve goes to the princess at the same moment fay comes to sir george uncle george poor little annis marsh is dying to see de water ballet at de cirque dying is she that's very sad and we cannot get anybody to take us you understand we fay after a sly little laugh mrs marsh shuts her eyes at the mention of de circus and de princess shrugging her shoulders well she is continually in the clouds you know if my gray hairs found favor with the authorities it would give me the greatest possible pleasure oh you are a good-hearted man oh, my days in paris are numbered but perhaps there is a matinee early next week yes a matinee is the proper thing for young ladies is it not certainly fay with outstretched fingers and a very wry face my lord always matinee 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 eve advances mrs marsh and annis who have moved away from the princess and eve now rejoin the princess eve shaking hands with fay 
I trust I didn't weary you at the dinner table with my stories of Epicinio. Very. I could listen to them forever. Eve goes off with Sir George. Princess to Annis and Faye. Good night, children. Kissing Annis affectionately. Good night, Annis. Thank you for allowing me to come down tonight, Princess. Princess, stroking Annis's brow. Ah! She kisses Faye less demonstratively. Faye accepts the kiss without much response. You have tired eyes. You read in your room till early hours, they tell me. You'll regret it when you are my age. I will not read tonight. That's sensible. Good night. Faye, with a stiff body and with fingers again outstretched, goes off with Annis. Princess, to Mrs. Marsh, who comes to the princess. Evelyn, I want to be left to myself for a little while. Tell the servants they are not to come in here till I am out of the room. Why? Why are you not going out? Princess, moving away, opening and shutting her fan. I am disinclined for a crowd, for wearing a fixed smile for an hour or two. Don't go to bed. I shall be glad of your company when I come upstairs. Mrs. Marsh moves to the door and stands there looking at the princess wistfully. That is all, Evelyn. Mrs. Marsh withdraws. After a short pause, the princess securely closes the lower doors and the upper doors on the left and, having lowered the blinds as she passes the windows, goes to the upper doors on the right and draws them together without quite closing them. Then she sits, staring before her. Suddenly, turning her head, she listens intently. She composes herself as Edward Oriel enters, carrying his hat and overcoat. He closes the door carefully, deposits his hat and coat upon the settee, and comes to her. She rises, dignified, calm. He takes her hand, bends over it, and kisses it. Princess, withdrawing her hand. Thank you for granting my request, Mr. Oriel. Thank me. Perhaps it is inconsiderate of me to have asked you to spare me a few minutes tonight. You must not be late at the Elsie. I have some hope of your allowing me to be your escort. I should have been happy, but there is no Elsie for me tonight. Princess. Mr. Oreo. A slight pause, during which she palpably nerves herself. It has already been an effort to me to get through so much of this evening. I... I am uneasy, even unhappy. Unhappy? Frankly, I cannot rest, sleep, face people with composure until I have talked to you, reasoned with you, on the subject of this, this madness. Edward, after a short silence. Madness? She sits without speaking. Madness. It is five days since you, since you spoke to me, is it not? Yes. Princess, passing her hand over her brow. I asked you, I think, to keep silent for a week, to allow no one to suspect your feelings towards me, too. Too. To come to you at the expiration of a week for your answer. For my answer? Surely that was not my expression. Your answer. That was the word. 
your answer, princess. I wish to give you time to reflect. My surprise must have betrayed me into employing so misleading a word. And your desire that I should have time for reflection now impels you to dismiss me at the end of five days. It has struck me that, after all, I may only be subjecting you to unnecessary suspense. I... I cannot wait till the week expires. Something has changed you, princess. Why do you say that? What do you charge me with? With having been another woman five days ago. I repeat, you must have misunderstood. Misunderstood? Oh, it was impossible from the beginning. He walks away and takes up his hat and coat. She rises. He turns to her and bows. She holds out her hand. Not like that, Mr. Oriel. He comes to her, takes her hand in his for a moment, and turns away. His head bows. Poor boy. Boy? Oh, I know. I speak comparatively. Pay your court to a girl of eighteen, Mr. Oriel, and you are man enough. But to a woman of my age... He turns to her. Yes, 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 Aunt Mary was right. Humor that saving grace of life is indeed denied to you. A man of six or seven, is it? Seven and twenty? And a woman of nearly forty? Forty! Oh, dear Mr. Oriel! Princess, you need not let my youth scare you. Those belonging to me will tell you, I have never been young. I have been young, and I cannot forget it. You do yourself injustice. You take no account of your great gifts, of the graciousness of your disposition, the generosity of your heart, the alertness of your mind. Hush! Your blind admiration invests me with all these fictitious qualities. I am vain, nothing more. I will not believe that. But if it were true, you would have but to look into your mirror to be satisfied. What should I see there? Ah, oh, you cannot put it into words. I can. I should see a well-preserved woman. Do you know what a well-preserved woman resembles? A harp-string strung to its uttermost tension. The string may be in tune, capable of producing most captivating sounds, but the next thing that happens to it is... It breaks. She walks away and sits with her face averted from him. I take you at your word, princess. But let us vary your metaphor. Let us agree that the shadow upon your dial faintly touches the meridian. She utters a little sound, half laugh, half sigh, in assent. Come, then. Is this the lesson your experience has taught you? That in contemplating the most critical step in life, an earnest, reflective man is mainly attracted by the lighter endowments of womankind? Ah, no. You mean you are not so attracted? I do. Princess, turning to him, indicating the chair facing her. Sit down for a moment. He sits, somewhat stiffly, placing his hat and coat upon the chair between them. Hearken the truth. Mr. Oriel, you wish to marry me. You are not in the least under the spell of any outward grace still remaining to me. No, you have no thought but for my amiability of temper— my sound qualities of character. Briefly, you desire to be less a lover than a devoted friend, a companion, under the name of husband. Is not that so? 
You remember my words? Now for the truth. When, to use your expression, I dismiss you, I hold out my hand to you in friendship. Smilingly. The hand you have two minutes previously, slightly scorched with your salute. You come to me. You take my hand. I feel yours tremble. I look up at you. What a woeful face. Your lip quivers. You, the earnest, reflective, old young man, the cunning analyst of woman's character, you are at the point of breaking down like a schoolboy. He makes a movement. She lays her closed fan upon his arm. I am not mocking you, only opening your eyes. I have nearly finished. What reason did you, in a fit of absent-mindedness, give Aunt Mary for your not wishing to quit this city? Because Paris is satisfying. Really? Tell me now, honestly, if I struck my tents tomorrow, would Paris continue to be satisfying, or would you then prefer to follow my caravan? Honestly. His eyes meet hers for a moment, then he stares at the ground. Finally. You know you are attempting to lower yourself to the level of some of the dandies who flit about me here. How come it you are found haunting the shop of the coiffeur and the parfumeur? Why is your coat suddenly of the most modern mode? And why are you, as long as daylight countenances it, decorated with an orchid that must fill our poor butterfly, Sir George Lamorant, with envy? Why is all this? Princess. I will tell you, because you are deceiving yourself, because you are not the wise, sober person you pretend to be, because you have, in the old, simple fashion, lost your foolish heart, because you are young, young, young. And because you are beautiful. Princess, with a graceful shrug of the shoulders, turning from him. Well, you see. Yes. You are right. I... I have been deceiving myself. And you. No, not me. Edward, leaning his head upon his hands. Ah, princess. Why, when I would appear to you older than my years, do you make a child of me? Suddenly throwing himself upon his knees before her, clasping her hand and waist. I love you! I love you! I love you! Princess, with her hand to her bosom. For mercy's sake, don't tell me like that. Forgive me, forgive me. Forgive you? Yieldingly, her head drooping over his. Oh, heaven, I would not have done it otherwise. There is a moment's silence. Then they raise their heads and look at each other. Edward, in wonderment. Princess. They rise, she guiltily. She leaves him, he follows her. Good night, Mr. Oriel. You would not have it otherwise. Good night. Tell me. I have told you I am vain. You know how my life has been spent these twenty years past. My maturity is not the placid, dignified maturity it should be. There clings to me the aroma of stale girlhood. I admit that I have been fluttered, confused by your profession of love. He seizes her hand, she releases herself. But for your own future's sake, if not for the sake of the remnant of self-respect I have left me, oh, please desist. You will see me tomorrow. 
She wrings her hands. He takes up his hat and coat. Tomorrow. As. Your lover. Your lover. No, I cannot, will not, allow you to speak to me of love again. Let us forget. Forget entirely. Forget. Princess, standing before him with drooping head. It would appear strange to our friends, perhaps, were we to avoid each other suddenly, but you must never remind me, by word or look, of this, to me, humiliating interview. Sir George Lamorant enters, carrying his hat and overcoat. Princess, turning to Sir George quickly. Ah, you will both be late at the Elsie, surely. Why don't you go together? I want to speak to you for a moment, if I may. Edward to Sir George, stiffly. We may meet in the crowd. Good night, Princess. Good night, Mr. Oriel. Edward goes out. Sir George, looking after him. A reserved, cold-blooded boy, that. Very. Pardon me, you look a little... My head. It doesn't matter. Sitting. I am not going out. So Mrs. Marsh tells me. Poor lady, I am afraid the Zuliani has been troubling you again. She is a stony-hearted little plague, a sad disappointment. It is about her I wish to speak to you, but some other time. No, no. Sir George, producing a letter. I have received another letter today from New York. Handing her the letter. From the woman who was with the wretched Flavio Zuliani when he died. Princess reading the letter in an absent way. Oh. We are arriving at the details by degrees. What do you say now? Of course that the girl is no more your poor brother's child than I am. Sir George nodding assent. No motive is ascribed there, but... It is sufficiently plain, I think. On the death of your brother's little daughter, another child was found to fill her place, to preserve the claim to the allowance. Sir George assenting again. What damned villains there are in the... I beg your pardon. No, no, I agree with you. However, there's one less, since Signor Zuliani has joined the infernal orchestra. Thank God, in any event, there is no ground for suspecting poor Fay to be a party to the fraud. Oh no, George. According to this, Fay herself was only an infant at the time. Part maid, part monkey, she is honorable enough. Returning the letter. What are you going to do? Let her know. I am merely waiting for a communication from Milan, from the priest to whom Zuliani appears to have sent evidence of his rascality. I may find it at the club tonight, and then... Princess, rising. She doesn't care for me, but tell her I remain her friend. Sir George, bowing to her gratefully. Ah... <laughs> and I saw Rupert's eyes looking at me from under her lashes. Yes, and this is the girl who is to fill the void in your life. Oh, oh, I am unhappy, George, desperately unhappy. 
She moves away and sits with her back turned to him, wiping her eyes. He throws his hat and coat upon the settee and sits. Sir George, not looking at her. Dear Laura, I am profoundly sorry. Princess, gazing out the door at which Edward has gone out. My good friend, the weak, irresolute, doting age of men and women is not youth nor old age. It is our time of life. Come, come, come. You have been firmly affectionate, not weak and doting, in your relations with Faye. Princess, her eyes upon the door. Faye, yes. But if I was ever tempted to be weak, with some other person. With whom? Princess, fretfully. How can I tell? Anybody. Anybody. Rising as she speaks, and taking a few steps towards the door. I have an odd fear that I am one of those silly women whose destiny it is to struggle and fight to keep their dignity, and who, in the end, yield and do something the world calls ridiculous. Sir George, after a pause. Laura? Yes? Forgive my impertinence, but of course I know how a woman situated as you are is beset on all sides. You give me the idea that you are frightened of being induced some day to... to forego your liberty, marry again. She gives him a quick, suspicious look, then comes to him. He rises. Princess, laughing artificially. <laughs> well, many a lonely, dissatisfied woman has made a laughing stock of herself in that way. Not necessarily a laughing stock. But very often, and lonely man also. Do you never shiver at the thought that, despite your hypochondrous, perhaps because of it, you may yet, yet. Sir George, laughing. Fall in love? <laughs> yes. No, no. Injudiciously, I mean injudiciously. Injudiciously. On my travels with the daughter of an Australian or a South African farmer, a pretty young face under the brim of a tennis hat. Well? Heaven spare one from anything of that sort. Princess, moving away, staring at the ground. Yes, heaven spare one from anything of that sort. Laughingly, he takes up his hat and coat and then turns to her. She is standing, self-absorbed. He contemplates her silently for a moment. Gradually, his expression and bearing undergo a change. Princess. Princess, rousing herself. Forgive me. Sir George, inviting her to sit. If I am not tiring you unmercifully. She sits, a little surprised. He deliberately fetches another chair and sits near her. She watches him inquiringly. You have set me thinking. Smilingly. I am forbidden the process. Thought is the doorkeeper to dyspepsia. So I discharge my load promptly. Laura... I wonder whether or not it would be well for you and me to marry. Marry? Whom? Each other. Each other? Pardon my egotism. 
I have already caught myself reviewing my plans rather frequently of late. The effect of your charming hospitality. What I have asked myself, stripped of poetic accessories, is the prospect ahead of me. Travel, banishment, unrest, continual discontent, ultimately confirmed misanthropy. I have conjured up, too, the dreadful possibility of my returning, in a poor, cowardly way, after many years of wandering, of my dragging myself homeward, reappearing in Bond Street, a decrepit, painfully well-groomed, shriveled, ghastly, starched, Rip Van Winkle, shuddering. Oh, oh, Laura, as the Zuliani would say, my lord. She laughs again, weakly, hiding her eyes with her hand. Now for yourself, Plaza Odom. Yes, for are not the choice fruits of the earth always served last? What is your case? I'll not restate it, except to remark that life appears to have evolved suddenly a new terror for you, the fear that, should you ever remarry, your marriage might be an ill-judged one. I have these queer fancies at times. Well, suppose you and I became husband and wife. I am sufficiently your senior. You are rich. I am far from the state of a beggar. The world could not throw up its hands in surprise. Would it not be, in all ways, a suitable match? We both suffer morbidly, fantastically. It may be, but we suffer. Should we not find, in each other, a cure? You dread being tempted to marry unwisely. No such temptation, I believe, is likely to befall me. But at any rate, your honoring me, as I propose, would make both safe. Safe? What do you say? Princess, her eyes closed. We should not naturally love each other. At our age, I suppose there is no love but in folly. She makes a movement. Uh, forgive me, the expression, our time of life was your own. She assents by a nod. I speak, of course, of passionate love. Otherwise... Rising. Am I quite outside the reach of your tender regard? As for passion... Let us make ourselves believe that we would not be five-and-twenty if we could. Passion! My dear Laura, has it ever happened to you to stroll through a garden on the morning following a great letting off of fireworks? Oh, the hollow, blackened shells, the spent cartridges trodden into the turf! You should at least be spared the contemplation of that! But you and I are already fast linked by many associations, and sympathy is affection. Certainly in that spirit, I love you most sincerely. Princess, in a strange voice, Say three times you love me. Three times? I love you thrice. Sir George, as if repeating a lesson, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
She throws her head back and breaks into a peal of hysterical laughter. I distress you? Yes. Perhaps you will let me refer to the subject again. Taking up his coat. Uh, in a few days, next week? She rises and goes to him, laying a hand upon his arm. You are right. It would make us both safe. I want to feel myself in harbor. Sir George taking both her hands in his. Ah. Princess, drawing back, frightened. Oh, but you mustn't hurry me. I, I must have time to consider. Everything shall be as you wish. Time to decide. Why not? How long? A month? Princess, nodding. A month. Then, a month from today. Thirty days. Thirty-one days. Sir George, with a bow. You will come to me, and either lay your hand in mine, or shake your head at me severely. In the meanwhile, we will let the whole matter be our secret. Yes, yes, our secret. Drawing back. Because I may say no to you, remember. Sir George, taking up his hat. Well, I may at least flatter myself that I am bound to you for a month. Princess, relenting. And beyond that, really, only I want to familiarize myself with the idea. There is a gentle knock at the door. Qui est la? Mrs. Marsh's voice is heard. Are you alone, Princess? One moment. To Sir George in a low voice, giving him her hand. Good night. Sir George, retaining her hand. How extraordinary. You and I. Perhaps. Certainly, perhaps. I seem to trifle with you, but it will be in all probability, as you desire. Sir George, looking at her affectionately, but with a smile playing about the corners of his mouth. Thanks, Laura. Good night. Princess, shrinking almost imperceptibly, under the steadiness of his gaze. Thanks, George. Good night. He goes out. After a short pause, during which she remains motionless. Come in. Mrs. Marsh enters and stands looking at the princess hesitatingly. Well, Evelyn? Am I wrong to hang about you so? But I can't help feeling concerned. Concerned? Mrs. Marsh, approaching. I have watched you during the past week. Really? I mean I have noticed you are not yourself. Something is worrying you to death. Princess, leaning heavily upon Mrs. Marsh's arm. Oh. What is it? Princess, her head drooping upon Mrs. Marsh's shoulder. Am I cross with you? A vixen? Never. Princess, whimpering. I am. Oh, some day I'll confide in you. Oh. Why do you remain down here? Come upstairs to your piano. Princess, pacing the room. No. Mrs. Marsh, going to her, putting an arm round her. It suits you. We will play to each other. 
You shall sing to me. Leading her towards the door. I'll not leave you till you are quite tired. Tell the servants this room is now vacant. Mrs. Marsh goes to the bell rope and rings. Evelyn. Yes? Princess, staring before her. Thirty-one days hence. What date does that bring one to next month? A servant enters. Pardon, Madame la Princesse. C'est Monsieur Auriel qui revient demander à Madame la Princesse de bien vouloir lui accorder encore une entrevue de quelques instants. Mr. Auriel? To the servant. My oui, Victor. Paul Squin, Monsieur Auriel, le demande. The servant withdraws. Why should Mr. Auriel come back? Nothing has happened, I hope. The servant re-enters with Edward. Edward stands looking at the princess. Princess, to the servant. Victor. Madame? Vous pouvez revenir dans cinq minutes. Bien, Madame la Princesse. The servant retires. Edward comes forward. Princess, to Mrs. Marsh. Open the piano in my room. Get me out a volume of Berlioz. Mrs. Marsh goes out. After listening for the closing of the door, the princess sits, looking at Edward with cold dignity. You will find this almost inexcusable, I fear. But I... I have been watching the lights here. I thought you would perhaps permit me to say farewell to you. Farewell? I cannot see you, meet you, and obey the conditions you impose upon me. I shall beg my chief to let me return to London tomorrow. And then, I hardly know. But I must go. You are the best judge of your own strength. I have no strength in this. Your chances in life will in no way suffer, I hope. Thank you. What a pity, what a pity. And so, Princess, I wish you simply, gratefully, devotedly, farewell. After a short silence, she rises. You are young and by and by, but I would not have you dismiss me from your memory altogether. Farewell. Standing away from him, with her hands behind her back and with closed eyes, she inclines her face towards him. He puts his lips to her brow. They remain quite still for a moment. Then she sinks into the chair which is behind her. Edward. Bending over her. You are faint. The room is hot. I'll, I'll join Evelyn. He hesitates, puts his hat aside, and, going to the window, draws up the blind and opens the window. Then he returns to her. She rises unsteadily, holding on to his arm, and walks a step or two towards the window for the air. The piano is heard, the sound coming from above, and entering at the open window. That is Evelyn. Shall I send for her? Princess, looking at him dully. Eh? Shall I send for Mrs. Marsh? She makes no answer, but continues to look at him. Suddenly her eyes dilate. Edward. Princess. Do not go away for a month. What? What do you mean? Continue to be... A friend to me for a month. It is impossible. 
Near you or away from you, I must always be your lover. Yes. Never again can I be simple, friend. Then, if it be so, would you rather go now and love me from afar, or stay and love me near for a month? I don't understand. Playing at happiness and youth for a month. I'll stay. A month. I swear it shall be no longer, not a day longer. As you will. Can we begin too soon? You have never seen my nest. It is still early. You can come upstairs and hear some music. Edward taking up his hat. Yes. Evelyn and I will entertain you with Berlioz and Saint-Saëns. Will you breakfast here tomorrow? There will be people, but you and I can watch each other over the flowers. They go off together. After a short pause, two servants enter and proceed methodically to close the jalousies at each window, securing them from the inside. They then shut the windows, bolting them carefully, glance around the room, and withdraw. When the last window is closed, the sound of the piano ceases. Directly, the servants have retired, the lights go out suddenly, and the room is plunged into almost utter darkness. After a moment or two, Annis softly opens the lower doors on the left, enters, closes the doors, and creeps in on tiptoe and stands waiting. There is another brief pause, and then Faye, dressed in a domino which completely conceals her figure, steals in at the opposite doors. Annis! Faye! Faye, approaching Annis breathlessly. At last! Yes? What? What? Attends. Pointing to the window. When I go out there, you must bolt the jazoli after me and shut the window fast. Then, are you very sleepy, dear? Yes. No. I don't know. Because whenever you are quite sure all the people are back and the house is really settled, you must creep down again, unlock those doors if they should be locked, open the window and unbolt the jazoli, so that I may have no difficulty in getting in. You understand? Going. Good night. Annis, following her, clutching her arm. Pay, pay. where are you going? You shall tell me or I won't. Hush! Drawing her hood over her head. I am going to the ball mask at the opera house. Oh! Oh! Shh! Shh! Whom with? With Blanche Oriel. Miss Oriel? On to quiet, you understand. You are sure to be found out. The concierge. Faye opening the window. That is all right. Monsieur Gautot is a great friend of mine. But, but, who chaperoned you? I chaperone Blanche. As Faye is unbolting the jalousie, the princess's voice, singing to the accompaniment of the piano, is heard. Faye, drawing back. What's that? The princess. Faye, unbolting the jalousie. She is married this evening, for air. Well, so shall I be, for me. Annis, throwing her arms about Faye. Don't go, Faye. Dear, don't go. My lord, how you shake. Kissing her. 
dear. Que la Madonna te assista. Faye passes out. Annis closes the jalousie. End of the third act.